So no pressure then. I thought I was first on your list because my name starts with A, but that would have been easier. That's probably what it really was, truth be told. Um, Thank you for the invitation to come. Uh, Gary, thank you that I was on your list because you're way up on my list. And and it's an honor to be here, to honor you uh, in your uh, leaving, but it's not yet, but in that process. Um, Gary is one of those people, you probably know this, that he's one of those people that when he's given responsibility for something or power over something, it's not for himself, but he's looking for who he can share it with. And I think that's what has made you, Gary, such an excellent leader, uh, not only in Canada, but globally uh, amongst our wider Baptist family and elsewhere. Um, And there's always those people who come into a room and say, here I am. And then there's people who come in and say, there you are. And, and I think that's what I would strive to be more than I am, uh, and I'm not as good at it as I could be, but Gary, you've given me much to strive for. And I thank you for embracing me from the first time we met in Birmingham uh, at the BWA and uh, this stray Canadian who, who thought I'd get, usually when, you know, a woman in leadership, I don't know if you know about this, but oftentimes when you go into an international gathering and you walk up to a male leader and you introduce yourself, they're like, oh yeah, okay, and then they move on. Um, But Gary said, let's go have a coffee. You're a Canadian. Great. And it started um, a great friendship. So Gary, I'm very grateful. Um, This is not going to be so much uh, a lengthy tribute about Gary because we're Baptists. And so it's going to be about the text and it's going to be about Jesus. And uh, sorry, I didn't hear what that was, but it probably was a gem. So that's what we're going to look at. But Gary, I hope that as we go through this, that you'll find something of use to you, where you are right now, and that would be my, my heart, as well as for the rest of us, um, because the word has so much to say. I'm going to have to rush, because um, I can be a long talker, and I'm going to try not to be that. If I had to title the sermon, and I have a colleague who warns us off clever titles of sermons, but if I had to title the sermon, it would be, All That You Can't Leave Behind, and you might be thinking of the U2 song, and that would be right. And love is not the easy thing, the only baggage you can bring. Love is not the easy thing, the only baggage you can bring is all that you can't leave behind. The song is about San Suu Kyi. Uh, Bono explains that it's a song about nobility and personal sacrifice, about doing what's right, even when your heart is telling you otherwise. Love in the highest sense of the word is the only thing you can always take with you in your heart. At some point, you're going to have to lose everything else anyway. And the song goes, as you probably know it, walk on, leave it behind. You've got to leave it behind. All that you fashion, all that you make, all that you build, all that you break, all that you measure, all that you steal, all that you feel, all that you reason, all that you sense, all that you speak, all you dress up, all that you scheme, all you create, all you wreck, walk on. The only baggage you can bring is all that you can't leave behind. And it's love. Now, I know this is a bit tricky for Gary because as he's told you, and you know he has a passion for justice, but also this passion for shopping, which is a bit of a tension. And Gary, as you move into the next phase of life, uncomplicating things and maybe downsizing responsibilities, what will you take with you? What will you leave behind? It's an inevitable questioning period. And I pray that you'll walk on from here truly trusting that during your tenure here, you persevered with faithfulness, you'll truly trust the Lord to take it from here. And as you reflect on your years here, my prayer is that the greatest thing you take with you into the future is the love of God and the love of people in the same way you've poured yourself out for his work. 
And I'm sure there'll be times you'll replay the tapes of things. Don't we all do that? You replay the tapes over and over again. Uh, Things said and done, regrets, anger, sadness, but I hope it's so much joy. The challenge will be to walk on and to take only that thing that you can't leave behind. I want to, I was thinking about this, working through this text over many weeks not uh, for other things. And then when I had to think, what am I going to preach for Gary? Like, you know, and I, you kind of, you start at Genesis and you go through and you think, wow, it could be anything. So I thought, let's stick with the text and we'll go through the text and see what it has to say to us. This is Luke five, the calling of the first disciples. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them, were washing their nets. He got in one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. And then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. And when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, master, we've worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they caught so many fish, their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching people. And when they brought their nets to shore, they left everything and followed him. This encounter, of course, takes place at the Sea of Galilee. And the very first time I was on the Sea of Galilee, we thought it was going to be really cool. We'd be out in a boat taking communion, you know, and following in the steps of Jesus, if you've ever done something like that or dreamed about it. And there we were, and it was the Feast of Weeks, and the, and the sea dews were buzzing the boat with women in bikinis. And it wasn't exactly all that we had kind of hoped it would be. And then at that moment where we're taking communion, and my colleague, who's an Old Testament prof, and he was sitting there, he was very concentrated, you know, reading the text and trying to be very dignified. And I was sitting there, and all I could hear wafting across the water from Tiberius was Tom Jones. Sex bomb. I kid you not. And I started to laugh. And I think I ruined the moment for a lot of people on the Sea of Galilee, but it didn't start with me. Uh, But that was my recollection of the Sea of Galilee. For this encounter on the Sea of Galilee, we have to go back 2,000 years to a much more primitive and undeveloped community. In clusters of small stone houses, lived people who eked out a living from the sea. Now, we have, of course, this image of these disciples of being somehow lowly, uneducated fishermen, but these would have been some of the wealthiest businessmen in the area. And together, probably for generations, they worked these boats, they caught fish, they fed their families and communities, they provided income for their families, probably for generations. They didn't know anything else. It's not like they had a lot of Uh, of options in terms of career and transition. But on this day, somebody comes along who changes everything in just a moment. Now, I'm sure you've heard this text many times before. You probably preached on it. You've heard it preached on. Isn't, you know how it goes, right? So they're let out the nets. Here's Peter. He's been out in the boat all night. He sees something entertaining happening. Jesus is coming along, gets in the boat, push out from shore, do your teaching. He's off cleaning his nets. Looks good for a little bit of entertainment. You know, not much happens around here. This looks good. And you know how it goes from there. After Jesus is done, he says to Peter, come on, let's go out. We're going to go out again. 
And the sermon goes, you've heard it before, go out into the boat and what do you do? Let down the nets again. How many have heard that sermon before? Go out and let down the nets again because Jesus says so. Go out and let the nets down again. Gary, I'm sure there are a hundred times you let the nets down just because Jesus said so. Just because he said so. And sometimes they came up maybe with a fish or two. And sometimes maybe they came up full. But this was not what they were expecting. If you think about Peter, he was probably in a stage of a bit of meh. Do you know meh? Right? And so he was in this, this place of, you know, this was all he knew. This was all he did. He'd just been doing it all night. Who is this person coming to tell him to yet, do it yet again? How exciting is that? You know, you, you know, meh. And we are in a time in our culture of meh, great meh, where nothing is really that important. And it's a kind of a place where everything seems to be tedious. A day takes forever to go by. You know, the desert fathers and mothers knew all about this and they wrote about it. And, and they talk about how, you know, they'd be, the monks would be in their cells where they're supposed to be doing the work God gave them to do, you know, copying out manuscripts. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? Um, but that's what they were given to do by God. And so they did it. But, you know, mid-morning, you want some social ability, you want maybe a coffee, and you're still on your own doing this wretched work in the cell. And then, and, and then, Evagrius, who is one of the church fathers, he says, and this seems to go on, every hour seems to last 50 days. Right? You're writing an essay, you know what it's like. You're marking papers, it's worse, let me tell you. Um, and so you're, you're, you're waiting for this, and, and, and the day takes forever. And so then you start to think, well, may, maybe, maybe one of the other monks will come and distract me, because this is a drag. And you wait and you wait, nobody comes. And so then you start to think, well, this place is a drag. I don't even like it here. These people are boring. And then it creates a discontent about your whole lot in life until it takes over your whole life and you, you, start, you start looking at the want ads. There's gotta be some other community somewhere that wants a monk to write out, right? You know, there's gotta be some place that's better than this. Meh, that's how it works out for us. But Peter lived in a time when he didn't have a lot of options about what he would do and what things would be like for him. Fishing was all there was. But Jesus says, come on out. You, you can kind of hear the man in his voice a little bit. Maybe I'm imagining it. But I think it's there. Because you say so, Lord, I'll do it. And then what happens? Miraculous catch of fish, right? And this changes everything for Peter because he realizes that somebody has power over nature. This isn't just anybody. This is somebody incredible, somebody special, somebody who has just, in an instant, changed his whole view of the world, right in front of his eyes. And so they have this incredible catch of fish, and he bows down and realizes he is but a meager human being in front of who this person is, Jesus. He's brought this miraculous catch of fish. I don't know about you, but that's, benediction sermon's over, right? Yeah? We all go home. I don't, think that, I don't think we've even reached the pinnacle of the passage yet. That's the exciting thing. So what happens next? If you read right to the very end, we read that uh, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Oh, okay. They always say that when we're afraid in the Bible. Don't be afraid. It's terrible advice to anxious people, by the way. <laughs> Uh, when they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. 
we can get so much from a text if we look at it from a different cultural angle. Um, this, this author was pointed out to me by a colleague of mine, Stuart Blythe, who is a... Uh, there was an author in Cape Breton. Gary has Cape Breton heritage. Um, sailing out of Port Hawkesbury. And um, Alistair MacLeod, he was an author from Cape Breton. And he wrote this short story called The Boat. The Boat. And The Boat is about something that formed the identity of a whole community. And all of the people there. The boat was who the people were from the time they were tiny to the time they died and into the next generation. And I'm going to read uh, just a couple of paragraphs from the boat because this young lad decides he actually has some smarts and he's thinking about leaving the boat and going into business, going to university to study, staying in school. But he's pulled back always to the boat because it's such a big thing. It's a big part of their identity. It's who they are. And he says, I first became conscious of the boat in the same way at almost the same time I became aware of the people it supported. My earliest recollection of my father is a view from the floor of gigantic rubber boots and then of being suddenly elevated and having my face pressed against the stubble of his cheek and how it tasted of salt and how he smelled of salt from his red-soled rubber boots to the shaggy whiteness of his hair. When I was very small, he took me for my first ride in the boat. I rode the half mile from our house to the wharf on his shoulders, and I remember the sound of rubber boots galumphing along the gravel path, the tune of the indecent little song he used to sing, and the odor of salt. The floor of the boat was permeated with the same odor, and in its constancy, I was not aware of change. In the harbor, we made our little circle and returned. And they galumphed back again, back to the house. And when we returned to the house, everyone made a great fuss over my precocious excursion and asked, how did you like the boat? Were you afraid in the boat? Did you cry in the boat? They repeated the boat at the end of all the questions and I knew it must be very important to everyone. My earliest recollection of my mother is of being alone with her in the mornings while my father was away in the boat. She was always repairing clothes that were torn in the boat, preparing food to be eaten in the boat, or looking after the boat through our kitchen window which faced on the sea. And when my father returned at about noon, she would say, well, how did things go? in the boat today was the first question I remember asking how did things go in the boat today he decided to return to school as I left my mother followed me to the porch and said I never thought a son of mine would choose useless books over those parents who gave him life the boat was everything the boat was who they were the boat was all he knew Peter's encounter with Jesus messed him up so badly that he was broken out of his mech, completely undone. Don't be afraid. Come and follow me. The best is yet to come. When they brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. Do you see? They left their boats. They left their boats. Nobody expected that. They didn't dabble with religion. They didn't ask Jesus to um, be added on somewhere at the side. They left their boats. Jesus is now who they are. Their identity is in Christ. And all the things that we usually think of, land, family, ethnicity, language, Jesus, when he comes and says, follow me, we leave so much of that behind and we find who we are in him. What are the things that we're hanging on to 
that keep us from leaving the boat. What's your boat today? What is your boat? Gary, I know you will have left many boats, even in the last few years here, let alone in the whole of your working life. There were boats to be left. They're hard to leave. But the reason you can leave it isn't, you leave because Jesus is God himself. You leave it because Jesus has a promise for something else. You leave it because Jesus says, follow me. But people could say, well, how could they leave the boats? Who's going to look after their families now? Don't they care? There's the significance of the miraculous catch of fish. The one who says, follow me, come and leave your boats. He's the one who provides to overflowing until the nets break. This is the Jesus that we follow. So what is your boat when you think about it today? When they brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. (laughs) Gary, I think you've let the nets down and persevered in faithfulness, and I hope many of us have. I think the Lord has provided and is able to provide in abundance. And so it'll soon be time to leave another boat. But walk on because love is the only baggage you can bring. And don't be afraid because we're going fishing for people. And people are everywhere. Leave your boat. Let's go. The best is yet to come. Let's pray. God, our Father, you are good beyond our imagination. You are the reason we are. We are so humbled that you should look at us and say follow me and yet you do help us to see what our boats are lord let us be willing to let them go to follow you where you lead to find who we are in you at each stage of life and to be renewed by excitement for the promise that there's something greater yet to come because we're going fishing for people god would you bless us in these words would you deliver to our hearts the things you would have us take from here And I pray that you would bless us all this day and into the days of this week and the days to come. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.